Tracy, riddle me this. Mm-hmm. How much Valentine's Day chocolate have you consumed? Okay, so the sad truth is not much Valentine's Day chocolate, but but a lot of cake. Oh, hell yeah. Yeah, I can get cake delivered to my house. And like from <laughs> a few different places. Like I can get different cakes delivered. So the answer is not much chocolate, but a lot of cake. <laughs> I think that, that sounds fancier and more indulgent. I hit this point with holidays in which candies change shape. So like mm-hmm. Halloween where everything's a pumpkin, Valentine's Day where everything's right. a heart. The dairy-free versions of things don't do that. Why would right. they? But I want it. So I then, like, buy candies that I would, uh, like, not normally buy that are dairy-free that are, like, a little fancier to make Ooh. up for the fact that it's mm-hmm. not heart-shaped, basically. <laughs> it's better all around. It's a better experience, what you're doing. I guess. I don't I don't it know. It is. You're getting better candy, though. I mean, it's not heart-shaped, but it's going to taste better. And really, what does it matter what it looks like? Because it's going in your stomach. Yeah. Well, okay. It truly, the candy is the lesser of the indulgences for me. One year for Valentine's Day, Kaylee and I had self-care days and we just went to the spa. The dream. I would love that. That was so good. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, uh, you know, chocolate. It's not cutting it. It's not a massage. No, it's not. It's, oh. Man, now I want chocolate and a massage. Hey, it's a global pandemonium. <laughs> you can only have so many things, Tracy. I know. I know. That's what Jamie and I always say to each other. We're like, chase your bliss. We're like, should we order cake to the house? We're like, yeah. Yeah, we should. I've gotten to the point that we've been isolating for so long that A, I like it. And B, mm-hmm. when I'm around other people, I get so excited that I'm not very good at talking. Like, I, I get oh, so yeah. passionate that I kind of stumble on my words in a way that I never did before. I had this moment, actually, earlier today. A friend of mine invited me to go to um, a drag brunch in Philly, which is a thing I've done many times. Yeah. But my instinct and reaction was like, no, unsafe. Can't go out in public. Can't go out into city. Like, I, we're actually not doing that. We're going to just hang out at... Uh, all of us are going to hang out at, at one friend's house and just kind of be a little bit safer about it. But I'm I'm back into that mindset of outside bad, stay home all time, home good. Yeah. But so many people aren't that way. So it's it's weird. I'm lucky that my immediate friends pretty much all feel we're doing things virtually again. We're quarantining more. We're being really careful. No one's going out to restaurants or bars or anything like that. But then I see people who are going out to a ton of bars and parties and all these things. And it's this weird flux time where there's a thing you should be doing, but people are two years into being fed up about doing it. Right. And then there's also, you know, the people who work in those places do need to make money because there's n- no other money right. coming in. And it's, yeah, it's this whole thing. Right. And So I get cake and that's how I cope. <laughs> hey, everyone, order yourself <laughs> a cake. Oh, have them write something absurd on it. <gasps> Oh, I will be doing that soon and reporting back. What would you write? I've learned. I've learned from experience. They don't do curse words at many bakeries. Really? A lot of them won't. Some of them will say, like, that's, no, we can't put that on a cake. 
Well, there's always the classic, like, congratulations on your divorce, which if you have to go through that, you should get a cake. Um, those are the rules. Oh, yeah. But I'm trying to think of a, like, a ironic Valentine's Day thing to write. So if anybody has an answer, keep us posted. Yes, there's a really great bakery near me that's probably a front for something, but I don't care because they make the best baked goods ever. The best cakes and cupcakes. You can only go in when they're open, which is, who knows? And um, you have to pay cash. <gasps> what do you think it's a front for? I don't care, Rowan. They make the best cakes. I'm not even gonna. I'm not even gonna speculate. I don't want to know. They can keep doing whatever they're doing because truly, they do make the best cakes in my entire area. I wonder if it's very illicit behavior and someone higher up was like, "No, guys, for real, we have to hire a very good baker because then everyone locally." We'll know that we are a very good bakery and no one will want to get us in trouble. <laughs> Truly, I think that's what happened because everyone in the area knows. Like if you're at like, – so the wedding I went to in October, their cake was from this place. Like it's – everyone's just like, oh, yeah, well, if you want the best tasting cakes, you go to this place. Imagine if it's just – you know, the the most typical dramatic movie, like, th thugs, trademarked, scary thug killers. Yeah. And then there's just this, like, grandma who's just so good at baking and all these, like, certified, you know, scary guys would die for this grandma who bakes all the amazing food. Right. They're She's the one, like, sh if she says, uh, like, do not come in with those dirty shoes, if you do, it's over for you. Yeah, you're out. <laughs> <laughs> hey, that story was concocted by us, and I am Rowan Hall. And I'm Tracy Harrison. And this is Willing and Fable, the podcast that brings you original retelling stories like that one, and in-depth research on the history, mystery, and mythology that makes the world so fascinating. Each week on this podcast, we research a topic from history and mythology, and then we write an original story for all of you to go along with that topic. So if you, listener, would like to support the research papers and creative writing assignments we do every single week. <laughs> a free, quick thing you can do is follow us on social media at Willing and Fable. We are on Instagram, TikTok, Facebook, Twitter. That's pretty much it, but we're there. You can also support Willing and Fable by becoming a patron at patreon.com slash willingandfable. And we'd love for you to visit our website that Tracy created. It's willingandfable.com. You could check out our merch. You could look into the sources we use for every episode, see our recommendations page. And then do not forget to send us your listener legends at willingandfable at gmail.com because we want to hear your wildest family lore or the most recent cryptid sighting you've experienced. Or... You can sit down with a pen and paper and draw a picture as freely and as shamelessly as you did when you were a kid. Then, hang your masterpiece up on your fridge. You deserve it. We're proud of you. But no matter what, thank you for joining us today. Hey, champ. We're so proud of you. Look at you. Look at you. Look at what you did. You created that. We're so proud of you. <laughs> <laughs> this podcast just turns into compliment proud parent ASMR. <laughs> I want everyone to know that the pride that I feel, the role that I am taking on is crazy aunt that if you needed to get condoms, I'd get them for you. Like safe sex always. Like I'm yeah, going to tell you the real truth.
mm-hmm. whole truth and nothing but the truth. Mm-hmm. So help your parents. <laughs> <laughs> okay, happy belated Valentine's Day. That happened mm-hmm. yesterday. And yes. we did this last year, so I'm officially making it at least a two-year tradition. Valentine's Day is just very heteronormative. Mm-hmm. So we're going to celebrate by covering a queer story. And thanks to the help of our mythic patrons who voted on some of the topics they most wanted to hear, today I'm exploring the story of Achilles and Patroclus, as well as the very homosexual history of ancient Greece. Let's do it! I'm so excited! Before I go any further, hey, hi, you've probably heard Patroclus. Mm -hmm. Both the way I say it and that way are equally widespread. This story was told to me when I was young, and it was Patroclus, and that's the way we're going to do it today. Sold. (laughs) Greek pronunciations are terrifying. Yes. Okay, so many longtime listeners know that I am absolutely in love with the writing of Madeline Miller. Most recently, in 2018, she published the international number one bestseller, Circe, as a retelling of the sorceress from Greek mythology who is most famous for turning men into pigs. Mm-hmm. This book achieved its well-deserved placement on the shortlist for the Women's Prize for Fiction in 2019, and I owe her a debt for my rediscovery of Circe's mythology. Mm-hmm. But in 2011, she published The Song of Achilles, mm-hmm. which won the Women's Prize for Fiction as well as the Orange Prize for Fiction. And if I sound like that proud aunt, who wants to gush about the child's successes and awards and hang their art on the fridge, that is exactly where we're at. The Song of Achilles went viral not long ago, thanks to TikTok, and has Mm -hmm. become quite the queer, dark academia calling card ever since. Yeah. And because this ancient Greek story is so popular, people ask us about it a lot. (laughs) Yes, they do. They ask us about the the story and the book a lot. And I've been putting it off because I adore Madeline Miller's book so much. I'm intimidated, Mm -hmm. but I'm really passionate about this. So we're going to do it anyway. Yes. And I have not read The Song of Achilles because I am afraid of feelings and I don't want to be sad And I know that it is a very beautiful retelling of a very tragic love story. And I can't handle that. I am that insufferable friend that gives those books to people all the time. I have at least two copies in my possession, so I can just voice them upon someone else. Yeah. And I have specifically not done that with Tracy. (laughs) (laughs) I'll get to it eventually, but I can't. I can't right now. I, I, mm. Yeah, our sweet soft feelings are very vulnerable right now. Before I dive in today, this episode will contain discussions of sex, anatomy, war, violence, and death. Listener discretion is, as always, advised. The reading from the Song of Achilles that went viral brings two quotes from the book together. He is half of my soul, as the poets say. I could recognize him by touch alone, by smell. I would know him blind by the way his breaths came and his feet struck the earth. I would know him in death at the end of the world. And this book is told from Patroclus's perspective, so he's talking mm-hmm. about Achilles. And if that reminds you of Tracy's uh, sapphic poem, y- you're there. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say it does. It has very strong Sappho's poetry vibes, just deep 
longing and love. Yeah, that's because Madeline Miller is, a, you know, a classicist. Yeah, she's good. That, that quote keeps me up at night. I aspire to be that kind of wordsmith. Yeah. So I have grown to associate Achilles with a love story. But there's a lot of debate around that. So mm-hmm. we're just going to go through the basic events of the story of Achilles. And you can stitch together a commonly accepted version of his mythological life, primarily using Homer's Iliad, 12 books composed of 15,693 hexameters, or lines of verse. Wow. That depict 51 days at the end of the Trojan War. You can also add in the Odyssey and Pindar's 8th Isthmian Code. Greekmythology.com outlines this tale very clearly, saying, quote, Achilles, the son of Pallas and Thetis, was the greatest of all Greek heroes who took part in the Trojan War. Knowing that her child was destined to die the death of a glorious warrior or live a long life in obscurity, Thetis bathed Achilles as an infant in the waters of the river Styx, thus making him all but immortal. Only the heel by which she held him remained vulnerable. However, as prophesied, this proved costly because Achilles eventually died from an arrow wound in that heel, guided by Apollo. The faithful arrow was shot by Paris, the brother of Troy's most celebrated hero, Hector, whom Achilles previously killed in a face-to-face duel in an attempt to avenge the death of his closest friend, Patroclus. Oh my god, they were roommates. (laughs) Oh, oh, oh. Oh, girl, we are going to get there. In the Iliad, the Trojan War is a conflict between the Greeks, led by Agamemnon, king of Mycenae, and the Trojans, led by King Priam. The war began when Paris, Priam's famously hapless son, had to judge who was the most beautiful goddess, which is the worst scenario Mm -hmm. to get trapped in. So Athena, Hera, and Aphrodite, stripped naked before him, offered him amazing gifts if he picked them. And then he had to pick who was the most beautiful. He chose Aphrodite who promised him the love of the most beautiful woman in the world. This woman turned out to be Helen of Troy fame. Stealing her away is a horrible affront to her husband, King Menelaus. So his brother Agamemnon joins him in sailing to war against the Trojans. The Oath of Tyndarius, named for the king who created it, rendered all of the ruling men duty-bound to come to protect the husband of Helen. That's King Menelaus. Mm -hmm. She was so stunningly beautiful that when Tyndarius decreed she was old enough to wed, rulers and sons from across the region flocked as suitors. And the king, cleverly protecting against bloodshed, made all the suitors swear to protect whichever man Helen chose for her husband. Mm, Okay. Brilliant. Yeah. So when she was snatched away by the Trojans, thanks to Aphrodite, thousands of men from city-states all over the region had to follow the king of Mycenae to Troy. They were Mm -hmm. duty-bound. And they warred for ten years. 
Now, Patroclus was duty-bound because he had been one of the suitors who went to win Helen's hand. But Achilles joined the war for glory. Now, the Achilles heel was a somewhat later addition to the story. Earlier versions simply describe Achilles as just the strongest, most virile, and most beautiful among the Greeks. Beauty being a signifier of all other goodness that one could have in ancient Greece. After a bit of time trying to avoid joining the war and thus his prophesied death, and this very fun scene where he's disguised as a woman and then Odysseus tricks him, Achilles takes his place, leading his people, the Myrmidons, into battle with Patroclus at his side. They fight and fight and fight and fight for a very long time, with Agamemnon being constantly afraid that his power is slipping due to Achilles' success and popularity. The entire time, Achilles and Patroclus share a tent. Potentially as lovers, or buddies, or roommates. They were just roommates. They were just best friends. Besties. (laughs) Then in the tenth year, Agamemnon takes a Trojan woman named Briseis, who he'd originally given to Achilles as a war prize and slave. And this was an affront to Achilles' honor, so he's filled with rage, and now he refuses to lead his men into battle. Mm, okay. The Myrmidons no longer participate in the fighting. Achilles stays in camp day after day, and he even asks his mother, the Nereid Thetis, to convince Zeus to aid the Trojans so that Agamemnon would realize his mistake. Wow, that is next-level petty. And Zeus does, because he's also petty. Yeah, oh yeah. Well, that was uh, not never in question. Achilles is big-time petty. Uh, he, he's I, a, I'm so excited to learn more. He's a big, pretty, petty boy. Fearing that the Greeks would lose the war to Achilles' stubbornness, because again, his troops were spectacular. He was spectacular. Mm-hmm. Patroclus puts on Achilles' shining armor. He gets in his chariot and then leads the troops out into the field in disguise. Where he is swiftly slain by Achilles' arch enemy fearsome prince of Troy, Hector. Upon seeing the body of Patroclus, Achilles is consumed with grief and guilt. He throws himself on Patroclus, wailing. For days, he keeps the body in his tent and will not allow anyone to touch it, ignoring traditional ancient Greek burial rituals. And Achilles immediately rides out to the battlefield, slays Hector, and drags his enemy's body around, tied to the back of his chariot for 11 days, until King Priam comes to beg for his son's body so that he may be buried and his shade or soul is no longer trapped between worlds. In the end, Hector and Patroclus are buried. Achilles, worn with grief, goes out to battle and is shot, possibly in the heel, with a potentially poisoned arrow, fired by Paris. Paris, whose choice of Aphrodite as the most beautiful goddess and then the gift of Helen began the entire war a decade ago and he never once left the walled city of Troy to fight. 
Homer's Iliad is considered to be the first recorded appearance of a deep emotional bond between men in ancient Greek culture, though Homer leaves any questions of sexual activity ambiguous. They shared a tent, but did they really share a bed? (laughs) (laughs) Scholars and readers fire back, was Achilles' incredible grief at Patroclus' death really that ambiguous? Mm Mm-hmm. So I wanted to dig into that because I I think there's a a portion that a lot of readers don't know about the history. Yeah, let's let's dig into it. The Great Courses Daily describes grief in Greece, quote, "When Achilles in the Iliad learns of the death of his dear friend Patroclus, he completely falls apart, at least by modern standards of subdued grieving." He tears his clothes, beats his breast, rolls around in the dust, and goes without food or drink for several days. True, he holds himself largely responsible for his friend's death, but the point is that no Greek would have thought his behavior unmanly. On the contrary, they would have regarded it as entirely appropriate. Hmm. This is an important detail, because friend, lover, roommate— This quote contextualizes the grief that Achilles exhibits. As modern audiences have come to understand the story, every dramatic expression of his loss seems very extreme. Right, it does. But if we remember that the ancient Greeks who wrote this myth were not only accustomed to but expected incredible shows of sadness, it's easier to understand Achilles' true societal transgression. Hmm. In ancient Greek culture, a person cared for the dead bodies of everyone in their family. If folks didn't live that long, so if Mm -hmm. you lived to be very old, it was likely that you had experienced the ritual of death quite a lot. It was a task that was most often tended to by women, and it involved very specific and sacred steps like anointing the body in oil and laying it out for mourners before the procession to where it would be buried. Mm -hmm. This preparation was part of the grieving process, not something to be avoided, like we treat funeral homes, for example, today. Right, yeah. But Patroclus says in the Iliad, quote, bury me as quickly as possible. Because in ancient Greece, it was believed that the soul or shade could have no rest while a person remained unburied. During wartime, if a general failed to provide a time for the burial of fallen soldiers, it was considered a capital offense. This was a big deal. Right. And if you saw a body in passing, Greeks were expected to throw a bit of dirt on it. Mm. That was It was a huge deal. So Achilles grieving loudly is not something that would surprise the ancient Greeks. It was the way that he kept his lover's body, allowing no one to touch it for days as he wept and slept alongside it. Keeping a rotting body in one's bed is very dark. It is that step too far and his reaction that was too private that sets this heartbreak apart, not the wailing. That's so interesting. It's so different than how we would, like that part, oh, he's mad with grief and he holds onto the body, like that's what you think of, but you, you see the expression of grief first before you jump to that second part, and it's in the time completely flipped. You know, you have the the grief is, yes, he's grieving, you know, the sentence could be, he grieved, and then the big part of it is really what he did with the body. 
It, absolutely. We know also that Achilles understood the metaphysical crime of keeping a body unburied because after killing the Trojan who slayed his lover, he pulled Hector's body around on a rope behind his chariot for days. Right. We can also presume, as another figure of Homer's Iliad, he would know of Sisyphus, who was charged to forever roll a rock up a hill because he tried to cheat death by telling his wife to keep his body unburied mm -hmm. so that he would have to go back and scold her and get it all sorted out. Was Achilles attempting to literally hold on to the spirit of his lover by keeping him trapped in the world, risking both of their peril, even as he risks the same curse to trap his sworn enemy in possibly the same way? The beauty of this portion of the myth is the way that it describes the soul-wrenching, mind-baffling agony of grief. Yeah. And every interpretation of the actions of Achilles lead us back to that same desperate horror, no matter what society we really read it in. But I just wanted to say, for the record, that he is not risking an eternity of torture for a roommate. No. Oh, my God. No. No, not even, I would say, for a best friend. I have thoughts on that. Really? I do. I do. Okay. Okay, so, Trace, I pulled two paintings that show Achilles grieving for Patroclus, and paintings of Achilles that are not <laughs> made post-Song of Achilles, honestly, right. usually show him in grief. Mm -hmm. And the body of Patroclus, and thus the identity of Patroclus, is really a prop Oh, yeah, it absolutely is in this painting. This is a beautiful painting. It's very, it's got that kind of Baroque feeling, um, especially in the colors. They're very rich. Um, notably, the, the body of Patroclus is, like, blue. It's so pale and kind of blue-tinted. Um, Achilles is holding onto him with one arm and looking up and over his shoulder in that classic pose and actually holding back other people with his other arm. It's, I mean, it's a beautiful painting, and it, it really shows him holding on to the body of Patroclus while pushing everyone else away. In a lot of these paintings, there are many women, but usually there is one woman in particular, and that's Briseis. She is mm. the enslaved woman who was a Trojan woman and given to Achilles as a, a prize of war. Uh, and in modern tellings, writers have chosen to really depict the relationship of Patroclus and Achilles and Briseis as this complicated, interwoven, emotionally intimate thing. Mm -hmm. uh, Briseis is given a lot of agency, but also some of the modern interpretations really deal with how her life was being trapped for 10 years and how she, the mental gymnastics and the life she had to create to deal with that. Mm -hmm. um, notoriously, Briseis was treated very well by Achilles okay. and Patroclus. I don't exactly have a handle on how modern that is because it's not mentioned as much in the older works. Right. So um, in the next painting, the first one was done by Gavin Hamilton uh, between 1723 and 1798. Next one is by Nikolai Gay in 1855. And it's the same <laughs> scenario. <laughs> well, but it's, this is different. Um, this one's much more intimate. Yes. It 
So it has Briseis. She's the only woman in the figure. She's got one one breast exposed, and she's in blue, um, kind of just standing, looking at the scene. She's on the left side of the painting. There's a soldier in the back covering his face and his his hand. Um, so the body of Patroclus is laying on a bed. I want to note the colors. There's green around Patroclus and red around Achilles, and that was kind of. There's green and red were the main colors in the other one. And blue around Briseis. Yes. Um, so in this one, Achilles is actually laying on top of Patroclus' body as it's in the bed. It, it's a much more intimate pose. And I do not know who the person sitting right behind Achilles is. I don't have any specific way of knowing either. The thing that interests me about this painting is Briseis is holding Achilles' golden armor that Patroclus would have been wearing when he was killed. That was a signifier of who oh. Achilles was. Everyone could always see who Achilles was because right. he had the the beautiful shining armor. He was a, a whirlwind on the battlefield. So Patroclus was killed because he was wearing it. But then Achilles will put it back on to go avenge his death. Mm-hmm. Tracy, do you remember when you first learned that the Trojan War that we were taught in the Iliad is more myth than historical record? Because I, <laughs> I was uncomfortably old. Like, I was at an age that I was like, I think I should have known that before. Oh, yeah. Oh, I mean, definitely. I, I think I had a really hard time understanding if it was myth or historical. I, I don't think I had a clear picture on which one it was for years and years and years. I definitely didn't have a picture of when it happened either oh i know or the time and place that it's set in absolutely it, it, for those who don't know it's set in the, in the mycenaean greek time which is like the quote-unquote if you're going to really simplify things pre-greek ancient greek culture yeah we're we're gonna get into this but basically mycenaean greeks were a bronze age civilization which is important to remember when we think about the fact that all of these figures are portrayed with golden armor and then mm-hmm. chariots and very modern uh, by by those standards inventions. Yeah. Okay. So the Trojan War, as it is taught with its many, many mythological heroes, is a fiction. But it's not entirely a fiction. Right. For a very long time, historians believed there was no Troy at all, or no equivalent. Right, the equivalent of saying Star Wars is a historical documentary. Exactly. Daisy Dunn, writing for the BBC, says, quote, It was in fact the prospect of rediscovering Homer's Troy that led the rich Prussian businessman Heinrich Schleiman to travel to what is now Turkey in the late 19th century. Told of a possible location for the city— at Hisalaric, on the west coast of modern Turkey, Schleiman began to dig and uncovered a large number of ancient treasures, many of which are now on display at the British Museum. Although he initially attributed many finds to the late Bronze Age, the period in which Homer set the Trojan War, when they were in fact centuries older, he had excavated the correct location. Most historians now agree that ancient Troy was to be found at Hisarlik. Troy was real. There also survive inscriptions by the Hittites, an ancient people based in central Turkey, describing a dispute over Troy, which they knew as Wilulsa. None of this constitutes proof 
of a Trojan War, but for those who believe there was a conflict, these clues are welcome. So, was there a 10-year-long war? Very, very likely not. Was there war in the region? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. It was a valuable place to acquire. Heinrich Schleiman somehow managed to fail this task successfully. Okay, here's the thing. Yeah, for the record, Schleiman was a very, very smart man who was also a dirty liar. He over-exaggerated oh, yeah. everything. And though he did excavate the site, he got his information from the expert Frank Calver and then never credited him. Now, if you have any interest in archaeology, you know the name Heinrich Schleiman. He's, he's, a, he's a very distinct figure in, in you know, archaeological history. Um, he's big yuck. Yeah, he's not great. Um, he, he really liked to pick up something and claim what it was with no real evidence. So like you said, at the excavation of Troy, he'd pick it up and be like, this is Paris's sword. And it's like, you have literally no way to prove or know that it was any, it's the right time period. So, like he, so, so that was the, the kind of the big, one, one of the many, many big problems with Schleiman. But he did, you can't deny, help us find the real Troy. He also liked to dress his very young wife in jewelry that he uncovered at that site and others, <gasps> claiming it was oh jewelry God. directly from Helen of Troy. And that's... Oh, and she would show up to events in mm-hmm. full, priceless, ancient jewelry. And we're talking like a necklace choker that like... Entirely intact. Into- it like shocked and horrified people. Like people didn't take very well to that. Yeah, like... Oh, I'm getting itchy just thinking about it. I just want to actually throw this out there while we're on the topic. Uh, nowadays, you can actually wear ancient artifacts. There is a huge business for museums and collections and galleries to sell the the artifacts they don't need. The things that are that are there are many of that that are damaged, and there is a lot of. There are a lot of CD versions of that, and then there are a lot of good versions of that. But if you do desire to own a historical artifact, you can buy them from museums from that area that get to mm-hmm. make decisions about their own history. Well, and but I guess while we're the one last thing I want to say about Schliemann and his whole time period of archaeology is that it's not really archaeology. It is grave robbing. Oh, for sure. And and that's a distinction I want to make because there was no scientific work. There was not the same rigor around the scientific process. There weren't permissions. The the cultures whose things he found did not get to keep them. So, again, while he found Troy, we do recognize, oh boy, Schleiman, not great. And that whole period of archaeology, while we like to romanticize it and it's fun to, you know, think of the mummy and, and uh, the whole aesthetic... The, the fictional version of that is, is a fun place to romp around in. The reality of it. <laughs> it was really dark. Yeah. So let's go back to history where people are interacting in their own, in their own space. Let's do it. In their own time, the Greeks believed the Trojan War happened. Herodotus, called the father of history, in the 5th century estimated that the war had happened 800 years before his own birth. Eratosthenes, a mathematician, dated it to a very specific date of 1183 or 84 BCE. He gave himself a, a thousand 
and 100 years difference between the two dates and just said it's one of these dates. Yeah, that was an audacity moment. Well, he had nothing if not that, I suppose. <laughs> Keep this in mind when you think about what I've described and what we're going to discuss moving forward. The people who wrote the stories about the Trojan War are archaic Greeks. Mm -hmm. That was about 700 to 450 BCE. They were telling stories about Mycenaean Greeks, which was about 1300 to 1000 BCE. The latter was a Bronze Age civilization, and there was a large period of time before Homer started writing that is referred to as the Dark Age of Greece because things got so bad for everyone for so long. Wow. Traditionally, our Dark Ages over-exaggerated? Yeah, probably. But also, the Bronze Age civilizations in the region broke <laughs> in a big way. And then things were really rough. And so, okay, Dunn adds, quote, The Greeks found in the legacy of the Trojan War an explanation for the bloody and inferior world in which they lived. Achilles and Odysseus had inhabited an age of heroes. Their age had now died, leaving behind it all the bloodthirstiness, but none of the heroism or martial excellence of the Trojan War. That's a really understandable way to think of your position in history, given what they knew. Absolutely. And it really explains why stories about the Trojan War look the way that they do. Mm-hmm. All right, let's talk about our very, very gay friends, the ancient Greeks. Let's do it. Okay. A quote from Achilles and Patroclus, the erasure of LGBT plus history by Reina Johnny, writing for Academus. Quote, Pedastry was an ancient custom wherein an Erastus, an older man in his mid to late 20s, and an Aromenos, a younger man past puberty but under the age of 18, would partake in the pleasures of an intellectual and or sexual relationship. This was seen to be beneficial to Greek society since the Erastus ideally had a teacher-like relationship with the Aramenus. This was modeled in the relationship of Zeus and Ganymede, which was ideal due to their age difference. Mm. Ganymede was a beautiful boy granted immortality in exchange for entertaining Zeus. Many scholars argue that the Greeks did not have the same labels for sexuality that we do now. This practice seems to have entered ancient Greek society in the Archaic period. Right. And of course, this term is the root for the modern term pedophile, someone who sexually assaults children. In ancient Greek society, though, the youth of the Aramenos was a large part of the dynamic. Mm -hmm. But they were the same age as the teen girls who were married off and thus they were considered to be old enough for sexual relationships. Okay. Modern age estimates range anywhere from the early teens up to the early 30s as a way to indicate physical maturity. For example, uh, a tall young man or one sporting facial hair was si highly sought after. Okay. And uh, sometimes the older figure would be a bit older. Um, it's very complicated in an interesting yeah. way, especially because, because 
it influenced so much of how society operates or was influenced by that. So, for example, in Crete, the father had to be involved and approve of the older lover or mentor his son would take. And in Athens, fathers would pray for especially handsome sons to attract a lot of suitors. A pederastic relationship was as much a political maneuver as anything else, if not more. Oh, absolutely. I, I mean, I remember watching a documentary that um, that talked about the idea that, you know, all men had these inclinations, you know, wanted to be in these relationships. And then it was a youthful thing. So when you matured into like a, a real man and adult, it was like, okay, now it's time to get married to a woman and start a family. And there was different phases of your life. Yes. And that kind of corresponded to this very ubiquitous culture. Yes. So in a lot of ways, it was something that what we would consider both young men, like there wasn't, mm-hmm. there wasn't always some like incredibly old man and some very, very young boy. The age gap was a little bit closer also because people died younger. Right. Uh, and what they considered old was not as much older. But if a pederastic pair of lovers chose to stay together as they aged, the Greeks would say, quote, you can lift up a bull if you carried the calf. So there was a precedent for them deciding to be together, not at the expense, though, of then marrying a woman. Right. Okay. And this is really important to emphasize, not all pederastic relationships were sexual. Right. Uh, they Scholars have lots of reason to believe that many of them genuinely were just older mentors. And in some cases, the sexual element would be the older mentor explaining what to do, not actually engaging in sexual activity. Mm-hmm. So th- it covers a wide swath of partnerships. Yeah. Yeah, it does. Male sex workers were just as routine as female ones in ancient Greek archaic society. And no one would bat an eyelash at a man paying for the services of another man. Mm-hmm. However, if too young a man or a man who was lower class or convenient to discredit became a sex worker, it was implied that that might indicate that because they sold their bodies so young, they would be quick to sell out the interests of the community. Huh. So just like sex work is treated now, some ways it's valued. Some ways people want to pay for it. And they're going to be, you know, all engaged. And in other ways, we're going to make the sex worker punished for what they do. Well, yeah, you're going to praise it with, you know, or sorry, the, the way we see it today, you're going to give them your money, utilize the services, and then sp- speak against it. You, like, you see that all the time. People saying one thing, saying sex work is bad. We shouldn't respect it. We shouldn't value it or see it as real work while then, as they're saying that, handing money behind them right. to sex workers for their services and utilizing it. Like you, it, There's a disconnect and there's such an inherent shame in that in our culture that is unfortunate. It is my understanding that ancient Greek society was not quite that way. Uh, but of course, it definitely happened. No, yeah, they definitely had a different view on that. Um, something that was from a uh, – so there's a very famous Roman historian named Mary Beard, and she has a lot of documentaries. And there's just one that I love on Pompeii. 
you know, people always thought there was like 15 brothels in Pompeii. Mm-hmm. There's not. There's one. But there are these frescoes and murals of um, like naked people and different different sex positions and different this and different that. And what she theorizes it is, is that the place is either a bathhouse or um, basically the room that those are in. People are like, look, it's a menu and you can pick what you want. She's like, no, they're changing rooms. Look, you remember which one you're in because you go to the one that's got this picture and you, it's funny. So you remember it. She's like, look, there are hooks here that you would hang your toga on and you would take this off and you would go and go into the thing. It was so eye opening and it was just such a. It was a really different way of looking at it. And she can read it, so she'll read the inscriptions on the walls and read and, and talk about the different graffiti everywhere. That's so fun. <laughs> Isn't that fun? I've thought about that so much over the years. I've watched the documentary a couple times now, and every time I just love it because she's like, this makes a lot of sense, and wouldn't you find it funny to remember that you're in? Like, there isn't the same shame about it. So you just remember which of the pictures you're in, and that's the stall that you have your stuff in. Well, that's like that meme that goes around where the college professor, a woman, holds up a stick mm-hmm. and says, you know, this is the first reported uh, marking of someone marking a, a 28-day calendar. And all the students are like, ah, yes, history, blah, blah, blah. And then she goes, but I would suggest that this is the first example of a woman marking a 28-day mm-hmm. calendar because why would a man need one? Huh? And I, I saw that meme so many years ago, but, you know, of course my jaw hit the floor. Of course. Yeah. Yeah. Though no copy exists, there is evidence to suggest Aeschylus wrote a play titled The Myrmidons, the Greek city-state Achilles and Patroclus belonged to, or fought with. In this play, their bond was depicted as being sexual and was later criticized in Plato's Symposium, when Plato had so many thoughts. <laughs> Plato. When Phaedrus accuses the play of misrepresentation. <laughs> but here's the thing. He's not upset that the two men were depicted as lovers. He was upset because the play did not clarify who was the Erastus and who was the Aramenus. There was so much debate around this. In some pottery, Patroclus is depicted with a beard, meaning he was the older and therefore Mm -hmm. active initiator of the pair. Some argued that because Achilles was stronger or a demigod or avenged Patroclus's death, that he was the active player in the dynamic. And the men have a shared history since their youth. They share a great-grandmother with some lineage tracing Patroclus to be older. But as a young boy, he killed a playmate in a quarrel and was forced to flee his home. Achilles' father, Pelis, offered him refuge, uh, with some tellings of this claiming that the older Patroclus was meant to be a guide to the younger demigod, and others describe Patroclus as a gifted friend or a slave to the boy. Mm. The dynamic of growing up together in quite that way Mm -hmm. goes against the traditional roles of pederasty, especially if Patroclus was an enslaved person. Right. He then could not be. Well, yeah, it seems like the the two roles are not equal in this relationship. One has significantly more power than the other. Yeah, and the power dynamics in pederastic relationships are incredibly important. It is Mm -hmm. not the fact that two men are sleeping together. Traditionally, 
using that age gap with the older man taking control meant that he could maintain his place in society. The definition of a masculine man was his ability to help the city-state. The more these relationships embodied a mentor-pupil dynamic, especially in appearance from the outside, the more masculine the older participant and then the younger student seemed. Mm, Okay. Achilles was one of Greek's most famous heroes. He should have been in charge in every way. But if Patroclus was the Erastes, it broke everyone's understanding and it was offensive. Wow, that's so interesting. And it was very likely that the archaic Greeks didn't view sexuality the same way we do. We talked about this in the episode on Sappho. Mm -hmm. They wouldn't necessarily have written their mythological heroes in a way that expressed the labels that we are searching for. Right. Right. Of course not. We do know that they had very different standards for what they considered sexually appealing in a man. In the U.S. in 2022, the common narrative is the bigger the better in the penis department. Do we like an unrealistic beauty standard for anyone, anywhere? Absolutely not. But the Greeks went the opposite direction on the size spectrum. Mm -hmm. I love this fact. I know this from all the (laughs) art history. If you've ever seen a Grecian statue and wondered, hey, why is the figure's marble member miniaturized? You're looking at the cultural expectations of the men of the time. In his play, The Clouds, Aristophanes favorably describes a figure with, quote, a gleaming chest, bright skin, broad shoulders, tiny tongue, strong buttocks, and a little prick. Tiny tongue is unexpected. Yeah, I wonder if they're just linking the the, the tongue penis mm-hmm. department. They, I would imagine so. It's just... That one? That one was unexpected. The rest? Yeah, I, I, that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I'm sure you'll go into why that is. Um, let, me, let me go, babe. Let me go. I'm ready for you. All right, let's do it. I want to I know more. Okay. Just like sexual behaviors, the goal was always for men to demonstrate that their existence was in all ways helping to maintain the city-state. That was what defined masculinity. Maintaining control, expressing physical mastery, and asserting dominance was part of meeting that expectation. Naked men, shown in Grecian art, were depicted flaccid because it represented their intelligence, Mm -hmm. physical control, and focus, often in battle. While size was important, above all, the ancient Greeks valued the prepuce. Or the particular portion of skin that covers the glands of the penis. They named this the acropostion. To show that the glands of the penis was incredibly taboo, the acropostion was thus considered and poetically described as the most beautiful part of the male body. Many, many statues of famous heroes have the skin incredibly lengthened, often to impossible odds to express those heroes' virtue. Because covering the glands was linked to virtue, exposing it was associated with barbarism and slavery in the same way that large size was. Mm -hmm. 
One 6th century terracotta plate depicts four enslaved people working in a quarry, and one man wields a pickaxe and exposes his exaggerated erection, the artist even going so far as to paint in lines of scars that symbolize a circumcision. One of the ways men adapted to the very specific, rigorous fashion of foreskin was the development of the kynodesmi. This was a thin leather strip or similar material that would tie around the acroposteon and attach either up around the waist like a belt or back at the scrotum. This accomplished numerous tasks. The constant long-term traction elongated the skin. The glands was never exposed, and when working out, everything was fairly immobile. Greek men traditionally worked out in the buff. Mm-hmm. Their gymnasium oft being cited as a location for lots of sexual activities. So utilizing the kynodesmi was but one way for a man to show off their impeccable physical condition and thus intellectual condition. Interesting that you know, physique and intelligence were so closely related because today we're like, oh, if they're super strong, they're dumb. That we have an opposite. You're one or the other. It is. We are kind of linking it in the same way they did, though. They said small member, large intelligence. We see mm-hmm. the same thing. We just say large member, low intelligence. Yeah, I was thinking more about like the the concept of a gym bro, where it's like all your energy goes into thinking about working out, and you're not actually smart about anything else. But that's true too. We do think we. we I mean, we even to today we talk about thinking with one brain over the other, and that's what they were saying. I don't do. Look, I. I think with my top brain only. Right. And on top of that, the ancient Greek men loved a man who was thick. Like, they wanted a muscular guy mm. with a well-endowed behind. That, that was the They did like a big peak. butt. In women, too, actually. Hmm. So they would really be into Michelangelo's drawings of women. They would probably be really into what a lot of articles I read called Kardashian culture. Oh, okay. Because okay, we've okay. really in recent beauty standards gone for that hourglass figure which oh yeah though traditionally for femme bodies it's the same thing so all of this does really seem somewhat dramatic or Mm -hmm. foreign to modern readers but i do imagine that they would feel the same way about our customs and i don't personally believe that understanding the history and enjoying a modern retelling take away from the lore of these two men at all. I, I think they can both exist. Oh, we uh, clearly, I think we're both in agreement on that. We love to put things in their context, but then play around with what that means and look at it through different lenses. So yeah, absolutely. That's something that you and I both... Right. We talked about it a lot in the Sappho episode, which it shares a lot of the same themes. We're mm-hmm. exploring who the gay icons of ancient Greece were. And... I do believe in this story in particular that it is so important to understand the culture that wrote the Iliad. Um, Mm -hmm. One, because it's amazing that we're still able to use Greek mythology to express and understand our lives today. Like, this story has really taken off during the pandemic. Yes. Personally, I'm overjoyed that so many authors are publishing reinterpretations of Greek mythology right now, I feel like it's constant and it's so cool, especially in the young adult market. 
because they are able to maintain the legacy of mythology, which is adapting for the teller and the listener. Yes. In an interview with The Guardian, Madeline Miller said, As I typed, I felt giddy but illicit. I feared that my classics peers and professors would hate the idea. There is a long history of gatekeeping in classics. Attempts to expand the lens of scholarship have sometimes been met with open hostility, and women and scholars of color have been undermined and belittled. One of my professors had started his course with the following salvo, This is a class on Greek history, so I don't want to hear any questions about women or slaves. A young woman taking the revered and traditionally male epic material of the Iliad and centering it as a gay love story might not thrill people. I wanted this story to be for everyone, whether they knew classics or not, maybe even especially if they didn't. For so many years, books had been homes for me, places I'd found welcome when I couldn't find it anywhere else. I wanted this book to be that kind of story, one with open arms, with room for everyone who might want to come in. God, I love her as yeah, an author. I, <laughs> I really do. She put into words exactly the reason why I love going back into the, the society this story is written in just as much as pulling it into the present. Yes. Yes. It, you can tell with her writing that she is someone well-versed in the classics because there's a lot of information there that you just would get being a classics person. And then the way she takes it and turns it into something that is so digestible to everyone and weaves a story that transcends time, it's, it's why this book is so popular. You and I have talked about this off podcast because we talk about this all the time. Mm -hmm. It is important and even life-saving for someone to know that their queer identity is neither abnormal nor wrong. And... You and I were never taught about how openly queer many parts of ancient Greece were. Mm -hmm. And I can think of more than a few students in our classrooms who would have been so helped by that knowledge. Because it doesn't matter if they specifically identified as gay for us to be able to look at their society and say, oh, hey, the way that you feel is not in any way weird. I couldn't agree more with what you're saying. And, and we grew up in a pretty not conservative area. No. You know, our, our, our school had a very thriving gay-straight alliance at the time, and it, you, kids weren't necessarily really bullied if they came out of the closet. That wasn't, like, that big of a deal. Um, whereas there are other parts of the country and the world where it's so much more conservative and even more crucial to have these conversations. And we were lucky enough to go to a school district that if a book was banned somewhere, our school actually prioritized teaching it. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Um, and that, you know, I think contributed partially to the people we are today, where you don't get that in many places of the country. And I, I would say those are the places where you probably need it the most because it's not the message that people are hearing. There's... Another part of this story that I really want to dig into that kind of sits between they were roommates and they were lovers because mm -hmm. like, men throughout time have in fact shared a room and not had sex about it. And <laughs> yeah, yes. And the, 
This episode was so hard for me to write because I kept getting stuck on on this. And so when I think about the friendships of the women that I know and the women that I've known for an incredibly long time, they are so platonically intimate. Mm -hmm. There is a level of openness and trust and closeness that girls teach each other through puberty and into adulthood, in my experience. Yeah. And I... I don't see that in the men that I know as frequently or in quite the same way. And I actually asked my therapist about this and she said, I kid you not. So she shook her head and said, everyone is negatively affected by the patriarchy. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. First of all, I love your therapist. That's amazing. (laughs) Second of all, absolutely. It's why there's such a problem in in heterosexual relationships where the, I guess if we're going to do very, very heteronormative, the woman gets a lot of the emotional burden from the man put on her because it's the only person he's allowed to be vulnerable with. And then that causes a whole slew of problems where it's in a lot of queer relationships, you have a million people that you can be really emotionally available with and rely on and lean upon. And it doesn't put the burden solely on one person necessarily to be your entire emotional support system. Tracy, you are a mind reader. (laughs) I'm so excited about this next section. And yeah, I do want to say that a lot of what we're talking about, A, exists on the gender binary. And uh, a lot of what I am about to describe, (laughs) like every source is like, this isn't really the case in the queer community as much. Or it manifests really differently. And it's funny how hard it was to get like the words like the man and the woman in the relationship out of my mouth because I'm so like, I'm so used to the mindset of Gender isn't a binary. Right. And, you know, a a woman is more than a person who was born with a vagina or a uterus. A woman can be so many different things. And so to put myself back into that binary, the world is black and white and narrow lens genuinely was very uncomfortable for a moment there. Yeah, I, I got there because I've been researching this for a while. Yeah. And, you know, we exist in like a beautiful portion of the world in many ways where people are really stretching their own thinking and like being being accepting and, and acknowledging what they don't know or what they have biases against. But because our American society as a whole in like a government way and a policy way and a media way really mm-hmm. does maintain the gender binary, I think in this case, it is really important to talk about it. Yes. Uh so yeah, this uh, dagger of nuance, this does not apply to everyone, obviously. Uh, but context, okay. So <laughs> this will shock no one. I did a lot of research on this. Mm-hmm. And when I tell you that I am so excited, it turns out there are a ton, a ton of articles that came out in 2001 about men suffering a, quote, friendship recession. Hmm. So the Survey Center on American Life put out a big report in May of 2021. It's uh, the American Perspective Survey, and it's called The State of American Friendship, Change, Challenges, and Loss. Naturally, the global pandemonium caused a ton of suffering universally. (laughs) Just a little. Just just a tad. (laughs) just Just a little bit. The Survey Center of American Life reported, quote, There are massive differences in the degree to which men and women rely on friends for emotional support and are willing to share their personal feelings. Nearly half of women, 
48%, and less than one-third of men, 30%, say they have had a private conversation with a friend during which they shared their personal feelings in the past week. Men are also far less likely than women to have received emotional support from a friend. Four in ten women report having received emotional support from a friend within the past week, compared to 21% of men. Finally, compared to men, women more regularly tell their friends they love them. About half, 49% of women, say they have told a friend they love them within the past week. Only one quarter, 25% of men, say they have done this. Hey Tracy, I love you. Oh, I love you too. To be fair, we've said that to each other multiple times this week. Oh, like all the time. <laughs> it's interesting reading these where it's half of women um, sort of share their personal feelings. Did that with you yesterday. Um, uh, more than likely to receive emotional support from a friend. G- good God, we've been leaning on each other a lot over the last oh, few yeah. weeks. Emotional support from a friend. Tell friends I love them. I tell all my friends I love them constantly. Oh, yeah. Like all of these could be true for me within the last day. Not just week. Sometimes I think about, like, what if my friend passed away or was no longer here and they didn't know that I loved them? Like, I have to tell them. Oh, I tell them. Sometimes I will just rant, and you know this, sometimes I'll just randomly text my friends and be like, just so you know, I think very highly of you and I love you and I, you know, a slew of compliments because I'm like, I thought it. Like, why have a nice thought like that and not share it? Well, here's the thing. We were taught that it was okay to have those thoughts. Mm. And and that's a whole thing. Okay, so this survey also added, quote, compared to men who have only male friends, men with female friends are also more likely to have shared personal feelings, 38% to 25%. And to have told a friend they loved them, 35% to 15%, in the past week. So we can see evidence that men having friendships with women platonically intimate relationships with women Mm -hmm. helps this scenario (laughs) yes yeah i am thinking through all my guy friends i'm like i'm pretty sure i tell all of my guy friends i love them absolutely some some say it back more than others (laughs) i as an adult i have learned to recognize the way that people tell me they love me that isn't the words i love you Mm -hmm. oh absolutely because i i have a lot of friends that like that's not where they're at that's not their thing and but then i look at them and i'm like oh they just told me they love me because they checked on me because they knew i was feeling sick or like there is a language that is not just words that is still a way of engaging in platonic intimacy absolutely god normalize loving your friends so i normalize loving your friends so much it makes people concerned (laughs) or confused that's my new thing (laughs) there was an amazing tiktok i think i sent to you of a girl who was like Everyone thought she and her best friend were in a relationship, and then she showed pictures from her best friend's engagement party to a man, and it's, like, her best friend looking at her and them smiling at each other, and her best friend's fiancé on the other side, and it was, like, all these things where she's, like, "Uh uh-oh. I just... (laughs) I get it. But she's, like, normalize loving your friends so much. I just look at my life, and if I were to subtract my friends that I'm close with, and I'm not even, like counting a gaggle of people like just the the handful of people that i i would do absolutely anything for if i got rid of the closeness that i have with them like what is left of me i am so engaged with my friends in my life that i don't know what it would look like and and i say this a lot and i i don't think 
everyone understands it. But when I describe you and I growing up, mm-hmm. I often say like Tracy in a lot of ways like ra- raised me. She she was in the fire that I was forged in. I would not be who I am today without the interactions that we shared. Absolutely. Okay, so stats are great. Yeah. But I also have uh, doctors. <laughs> and I'm, really... I'm so excited. I find Clearly, I find all of this so interesting. This is the thing. Okay, okay, okay. <laughs> We're just back in the Sappho episode where you're getting so excited. It's the same thing over here. I literally couldn't stop wiggling. I was so excited. And I was so, like, incoherently excited to talk about Sappho and the nuances. I know. Isn't it really frustrating to be incoherent on a podcast? <laughs> okay. When you're the one who did the research on top of it. So you have all these facts in your brain flying and mushing and squishing themselves around as you're trying to articulate a thought. Woof. Okay, I'm about to give us a big quote. Okay, let's do this. Uh, In a piece for Inside Hook, Dr. Frank Saleo responds to that survey that was just published. Mm -hmm. And he's famous for having researched this phenomena that we're witnessing now all the way back in 1995 and then staying aware of how it changes. Quote, men aren't really great about expressing how they feel. And when they do, they feel that they seem weak. So men who are more restrictive in their emotional expression tend to have less intimate and close friendships. I found that men who bought into the idea of success and power and competition among their male peers tended to have less intimate friendships. So they were more focused on career, on status. Most men, when they meet each other in a social situation... Usually the first question men ask is, what do you do? What do you do for a living might be indicative of how they may judge you. Then they know socioeconomically where someone might fall. So there's that competition piece. There's the power piece. And then obviously the success piece. Lastly, what I found in my research was homophobia to be a strong deterrence to intimacy and closeness and friendship. So men who scored higher on homophobia in the scale had less intimate, less close friendships. Yes, just yes. Okay. So Rachel D. Miller, a licensed marriage and family therapist and founder of Hold the Vision Therapy, added, Patriarchal societies such as ours relegate relationship maintenance, emotionality, and care of any kind to women or deem it as feminine. Basically, we tell men they don't need to deal with any of those things. Men are expected to be tough independent, stoic, rational, sexual, and dominant. Where does that leave men when it comes to friendships? Truthfully, the men I have worked with who have great friendships are feminist men. They don't always identify that way, but once you dig into their actual values, that's what it comes down to. Yep, absolutely. Every single person I'm thinking of, unsurprisingly in my life, like all the men in my life that I'm really close with, I can easily have feminist conversations with them and they wouldn't be like, oh, you're a feminist. They're just like, yeah, here are these concepts. And yeah, we think about this. And yeah, you know, it's definitely something they're a lot more comfortable with. Um, And I love the trend you see now going of men being a lot more secure in their sexuality and in who they are and expressing it differently. And you're seeing it not just in the niche, you know, subgroup of TikTok or whatever, but Harry Styles just released a nail polish brand. A lot of people have just released, male celebrities have released nail polish and makeup brands. And, you know, there's something to be said about capitalism and can you really be doing good as a consumer for, you know, or it's a whole thing. (laughs) But I will say the fact that they deemed there to be an audience enough for this because those brands are for 
everyone, but for it's by men, also to be sold to men. Though I know a lot of men in my life who wear nail polish and stuff like that. And I know people who think it's weird or don't like it, but it's the more you see it, the more things become normal. What you were talking about earlier about the way that men not having close friendships ends up being a detriment to their relationships with the woman that they're close with is a huge part of people writing about this survey Mm -hmm. because there is this expectation that a man can get everything they need emotionally from one person and that is just patently untrue and also exhausting yeah and I've noticed sometimes when I talk about this with with men there is like a defensiveness or almost a blindness to it um because we have this narrative and that women are taught too that like you should have your one person who is your only everything and if the whole world were to fall apart you would still have your whole one everything person (laughs) and it really excites me that the articles surrounding this survey came out because a lot of them came out in men's magazines and they came out in NPR and places that are marketed to men. Right. Okay, so having close friends, aside from being a gosh darn delight, uh, can actually help your health. For Harper's Bazaar in the article, Men Have No Friends and Women Bear the Burden, Melanie Hamlet reported, by the way, read that article. It's such, it's so good. It's in our sources. Okay, sorry. Quote, only 5% of men seek outpatient mental health services. Men conceal pain and illness at much higher rates than women. And they are three times more likely than women to die from suicide. Black men face an added set of barriers, including systematic discrimination, racial stereotypes, and cultural stigma against mental illness. I want to say here, there is often in this moment the gut reaction to say, but women have it worse because their pain is never believed, blah, 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 blah. Okay, yes, all of those things are also true. Mm -hmm. My therapist gave me amazing advice, which is that you can have the word also. Oh, It really was just everything. It doesn't have to be and or but. Things can be both. You, You can be really bad for women in getting medical help and men can seek help less due to patriarchal issues black men receive an extra set of barriers really people of color in general receive an extra set of barriers and 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 all of these things can be true absolutely there is good news in this case according to healthline people with more social connections are found to have lower blood pressure, are less likely to experience depression, and live up to 22% longer. Wow, that is not insignificant. No, that's massive. And especially, that made me instantly think of someone whose significant other passed away. Mm. What does your life look like if you have your one person who is your everything person all the time? Friendships are so vital to then continuing to live. Yeah. So we know that the legacy of mythology is to adapt it based on the culture's needs and preferences. Please inscribe that upon my grave. (laughs) Okay. Your mausoleum. Got it. (laughs) Thank you. 
did turning Achilles into beefcake Brad Pitt and basically removing Patroclus and simply calling him a cousin in the 2004 film Troy accomplish what everyone was going for at the time? Yes, it did. Mm-hmm. <laughs> because that was masculinity, trademark yes. masculinity. We could dig into the catch-22 that is us telling the media what we want and then the media teaching us what to want. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but we don't have time for that. No, we, we only have, <laughs> we have one podcast a week. There's only so much. Right. So I really want to open up the possibility of an Achilles and Patroclus story that is not roommates and just dudes going to war together and is not gay lovers, but is two men who are intimately connected but still platonic. Because, like, imagine, imagine if schools utilized this story in that way. These are strong, heroic men who are fighting in wars and in every way embodying masculinity, and they still are close. Mm -hmm. And, And I think that we we sometimes get caught up. And I think it can be all things. Like, how great that Achilles and Patroclus are these, you know, two gay men in ancient right. Greece. And and sure, fine, whatever. Have your roommates. Like, anyone who calls them roommates is never going to come over to our side of things. Fine. Right. But then also toss in the possibility. What if they're just really close friends? Because if one of my very close friends was killed and I felt responsible for it, there would be not one single place on this earth that would not hear my crying. Like, I don't look at his expression of grief. It, it to me, his expression of grief is just a sign of deep love, and that love can doesn't have to be sexual. Right. Like you can you you can truly love people, and it's not. Like, it doesn't, I guess it doesn't have to be a a sexual thing. I get what you're saying, like that platonic soulmate. Oh, absolutely. 100%. And for people who don't really understand that, like the idea of like your, it's just, you know, you can hear soulmates, that person you click with, the person you're meant to be with. It's a person you click with and you just, your paths are intertwined. I I, I don't have words for it, but like just. Absolutely. I have more than one soulmate. I call you my soulmate when people ask. 100%. I, and you're like, you're my person. You know more about me than probably anyone else in the world, honestly, at this point. And like normal, like normalize that. Like it's not a thing that people need to look at and think is weird. It's, we just don't have words for it. Like I guess family, but like that's, that usually has different connotations. Like it's, we don't have a lot of words for the way that we interact with others in relationships. Like, think about it. Like, you, even someone, it's like, up until they're engaged, someone is, people will say, like, they're my girlfriend or my boyfriend. Which, again, not including a whole host of other things. Right. Which is why the word partner is becoming more and more popular. But I remember my sister, before she was engaged to her husband, I had known her husband basically my entire life at this point. Right. But he was my sister's boyfriend. Which did not explain how much of a brother he was to me by that point in my life. Right. But they weren't engaged yet. Like, we just don't have words. There's no degree of things. There's no spectrum of things so that you can describe it appropriately. 
I puzzled this out with my friend Trevor because he's a cis man. I'm not a cis man. And I asked him about his experience with the women I know having this close platonic intimacy Mm -hmm. and the men not. And he said that he had been taught that when women have a friend, it means that they can be weak around that person. There is a vulnerability. That is how many women understand friendship, not even mentally, but emotionally. Mm-hmm. And that was not his experience with his male friends. Uh, and, and I found that really impactful because yeah. no one had explained that to me that clearly. And doubling back, you really hit the nail on the head because I think that the the, the part of this story that resonates with me is the desire to be known. Mm-hmm. Especially in Madeline Miller's modernization there is this this aspect of the achilles story that he wants glory he wants to be known the world over and it is at odds with him being known intimately by this person who is such a defining figure in his life because to have that glory pulls him away from that closeness mm-hmm. and and the safety frankly, that it offers. So actually, for my story this week, boy, did I put off writing this. It was so stressful. I love this story (laughs) so much. Um, But I really wanted to explore the desire to be known Mm -hmm. for someone who is in this scenario of being at war. Um, Okay. Okay. Let's do it. There is a poetry of war that is not like this. It tells of heroism like a sacrifice that bears the weight of only one page. Hunger like desire, wounds open like wanting, a joy in victory, and never the verse that describes defeat. The men of war are depicted as gods, able in every way. There is no task too great, no blade too sharp, no foe too fast. Our enemy can never be so brave or so strong as our own legends can metamorphose our men. I thought I might be taller by now. There might be an inner strength that comes from killing for my homeland, that first wash of blood and bile anointing me with the favor of Athena. The Trojans would look upon me and quiver, for my gaze would contain the very fire of the gods, I would spear men like fish, perhaps two or three in a moment, and somehow the throngs of armored enemies would split before me, swallowed in the fervor and power of our army. I am no fool, mind you. I am young and so unversed in the experience of war. I know my stature and my strength as surely as I know the sound of the waves on our ships. For all my youth and trembling, I can see that my only advantage is that my bones do not tire as easily as the men who are older and cleverer than I. My life before the war was short. So little had come of me. There is no learning and growing. There is only babe at the breast, safe at home, and me, man of war, transported in a blink and terrified. I cannot remember my sister's smile, or 
the way that the path turns from my favorite swimming hole. There is a bread I can no longer name that wafts through my dreaming, and I wonder if my old and tattered sandals still sit by my mother's old loom. But I know how to fish a bird from the air. I've swum in the wine-dark ocean. My hair still grows and is cut and grows again. All the people who have ever known me may be dead. Or they've forgotten. I look upon the vast swath of muck where I toil, and I realize that there is a smile five years old that I cannot even render any longer. I've never shown anyone the way I can ride a horse or the funny trick I could do to make my mother laugh by using a slip of grass to crow from out in the field. And that is all. There is nothing else to me that I would know myself from the next dying man bleeding out at my feet. I am a Myrmidon. I fight alongside Achilles, golden god among men. I've had Patroclus clean my wound, and I've bested them both with dice, <laughs> only once. And I can imitate the way they laugh and carry on the way they communicate in familiar jokes. Half a dozen men all crowd around the fire with them so closely pressed and known that they could share another man's stories and, and never have a breath out of place. There is no force stronger than ours. We are the best trained and the best led. We are respected through the camp and I am promised a shared glory every morning. As long as you are remembered, you are never gone. As long as one man alive can speak your name, you exist, and there is no glory but to be known. I will memorize every Myrmidon's name. I am nearly there. I remember the cracks in Timon's eyes when he laughed. I recall Hesperos by his missing hand. I remember Leontios and his beautiful wife Melita, who he called out to when he drank, Erastus, who was quiet and kind, and Clytus, who couldn't swim. With my own hands, I will cover them each with earth, and I will try to recall every detail that kept them separate from the sword-swinging pack of us. And that is only the men from this morning— I have seen Achilles weep into the arms of Patroclus as they stood by the sea at night. Perhaps, if I am killed before I am known, I will grab the Trojan by his neck, my hands slick with blood, his spear within my belly, and I will say, Diocles, like a curse that he will whisper my name each night in horror. That is not knowing a man, nor is it forgetting him. Oh, that was so good. That was such a unique take on this story. I've never, ever heard a version of a story like that. Okay, so there are a couple things going on in my decision here. Mm -hmm. uh, Song of Achilles is written in first person. Mm -hmm. uh, it's told from the perspective of Patroclus, which 
I find a very moving way to examine interior life, of course, but also right. this scenario of war. War, to me, is always in the third person. Like, it's people describing epic accomplishments. Or it's first person from the head honcho making the decisions. You know, the foot soldier, you don't get as much. Right, exactly. And and I just, I, I think about what it is to be known all the time. Mm-hmm. I desperately want to be known, and I, I feel that, uh, above all things, it tears me up to feel that I am not understood by the people I care most about. And so imagining the hundreds of thousands of men who came over to Troy expecting glory, who had to live there for years and years, perhaps a decade, mm -hmm. and who had to somehow build a life, and then the glory that they were promised is just impossible. And not for them, you know. Exactly. And I I just wonder where where being held is for them in that s scenario. And when you are one of many, when your entire job is to be one of many men who run and kill and are killed, what does that do to your identity mm. and your way of relating with others? And if you are not set up by society to be able to easily create intimate platonic relationships, where does that leave you? Um, so I, I wanted to, I wanted a young man who could see it, but couldn't have it. Yes, that's what this is. That is exactly that feeling. Yeah, it's, it reminds me a lot of what we talked about with Sappho. And also that's me writing from the perspective of a man at war, like, hello. Right. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> could wax on and on. Right. About we don't know who Sappho was writing as. And if I had to link these two episodes, obviously it's it's <laughs> the Greeks and gayness, but also it's being known. Mm -hmm. And where is that? And longing. Look at the way both of these stories just embody so much longing. To want is human, so it's an emotion that carries thousands of years. Yeah. Good job. Thanks for going with me on that journey. I... Whew, I was stressed. I loved every minute of it. You you did seriously such a good job. It it's it touched on not only the context and the history and the culture, but also the human. The very, very human. Yeah, I I love Achilles and Patroclus so much. I want them to have their beautiful gay relationship, and it's just so sad. But I, I love that right now, in the pandemic, they are there. For the people who need them. Yes. And and I... Oh, I'll never forget. A friend of mine sent it to me. He's a gay man. And he sent it to me. And he was like, you need to read this book. It's so gay. This is amazing. I'm so... Like, he was <laughs> losing his mind at the, the fact that this number one best-selling, really popular book told this beautiful gay love story. He, he truly was over the moon about it. So, uh, because I've referenced it a lot in... In this episode, mm -hmm. uh, Song of Achilles by Madeline Miller, there is a Pennsylvania bookstore that sells signed copies of books that you can have personally 
written out to you by Madeline Miller. She does it exclusively through this indie bookshop. Um, and I, I love that so much yeah. because we love to support an indie bookstore. And I love a signed book. <laughs> mm-hmm. Where is this bookstore and how far away is it for me? It's going to be so, a fun trip. You can uh, go to her website. There's a link for it, but it is mainpointbooks.com. It's in Pennsylvania. We are native Pennsylvanians, so we love that you'd be supporting that. You mm-hmm. can order them online and they can be sent to you or you could go to their bookstore. But if you want to read either of her books, uh, support an indie bookseller, but also consider supporting the indie bookseller that she has like a close relationship with. Because how cool is that for a popular author to decide the only way you can get access to my signature is through this amazing bookstore and I'm going to leverage my success yes. in such a great way. So main point books, consider it. Um, thank you for coming to my TED Talk. <laughs> <laughs> Not me looking up where it is. Right? <laughs> How far is the adventure where will it take me? What other plans can I make in that area? Okay. Yes. And and as always, you know, we always talk about it on the podcast. We can support Thrift Books, um, bookshop.org, which uh, donates a percentage of your... Bookshop.org. Mm-hmm, your your um, purchase towards local bookshops. And if you go to a local bookstore near you and they don't have it, uh, most of them are more than willing to order it in for you. I have done that multiple times at my favorite local bookstore. And I want to throw this out there. Amazon. Okay, a lot of times when you purchase something through Amazon, it is actually coming from an independent seller who is utilizing Amazon. That is how our society has uh, funneled sellers at the moment. Please notice who is actually delivering you your product when you shop through Amazon because you can shop through independent sellers that way. Is it still using Amazon? Yes, but you know, okay, that's a thing, but your do not flippantly disregard returns when you are shopping from an independent seller on Amazon. Mm-hmm. Um, because that's a way to do some good. Honestly, <laughs> we have to d- measure out our good and what it really looks like, but I recently purchased books I could find nowhere else from an independent seller on Amazon, and yep. I'm frankly thrilled that they were there actually tracy ask me ask me my something good okay okay i was gonna make you do the same thing so this is good i think we're gonna have similar something goods hey rowan can you tell me something good okay so uh anyone who knows me on the internet knows that i am obsessed with brian frude he draws fairies um yes he has defined my my childhood in many ways um i found on amazon because i couldn't find this book i found Lady Coddington's Pressed Fairy Letters, which is one of the sequels to the Pressed Fairy book that's incredibly popular, I found a first edition that is signed Mm. by him with a drawing in it (gasps) that he made. That is everything you love. For the signing. And this bookstore was so sweet, and I cried a little bit, and it wasn't even, like, hideously expensive. So I couldn't find this book, and then I magically found a signed copy. perfect copy, Yes. Oh, my God. <laughs> I was having a very bad day when it arrived, and I did cry a little bit. I was so happy when it came. Um, so, yeah, sign books. That's so exciting. That is amazing. you got to take a picture of it. Yeah, I should, actually, because I, I love a, 
a Brian Froude book. I need, I don't have all of his books. Um, and I'm trying, that's like my like, I didn't realize I was a collector of things. Turns out that's the thing. Oh, I super am. I knew that about myself. And now that I have three new bookshelves behind me, I have four total new bookshelves in my house. Um, which means now I have room to collect more things and books, so <laughs> I will be doing that as well. Hey, Tracy, tell me something good. My something good is also book-related. Is it really? <laughs> yeah, it's two oh, books. We're such stereotypes of ourselves. I Listen, I love it. So the first is the book uh, The Night and Its Moon by Piper CJ, which I will say I have not finished yet. Um, and this is a book that I found, of course, as always, through TikTok, but the author wrote this story as a basically a bisexual fantasy story. Uh, it's focused Talking about representation. It, it's focused on these two women and their story. And I immediately was, was reading it, was actually thinking of us because it's these two women who grew up together from when they were really young. And it's the story of like, at least where I am so far, it really is just the story of their genuine love for each other each that you know they're each other's person the really cool thing that the author is doing is that she has opened up her instagram dms and wants to talk to people about the book so as you're reading it she's like message me your thoughts and what part you're at and i'll talk to you about it so i was chatting with her about the fact that um the one character realizes she loves the other one um and doesn't communicate it very effectively and we were talking the author she was saying how she wanted to make sure that you knew that these characters would love each other no matter what was reciprocated. Like the love was f for that person regardless of how that person reciprocated it. Wow. And these characters interact in this world that is so hard. Mm -hmm. And she wanted to make sure that the characters themselves made human choices. And she put her own flaws into them, her own fears, her own insecurities. So I'm really loving this story and then the clearly very heartfelt genuine nature of the characters and, and the way that the author is just so putting herself and her characters out in the world. It has been such a cool experience. That is so timely. While we're, we've been working really hard on this Sappho and Achilles stories, that has so many of the themes. I love it yes. when that lines up and you get to be passionate in a research way, but also passionate in like, good books way. <laughs> yes. The other book that I'm reading, I am plowing through so quickly because I ran out of time before our book club. Um Ooh. Yeah, Ooh. I think I'll finish it, though. I think I'll finish it. It is Project Hail Mary by Andy Weir, who wrote The Martian, which then became the famous movie. Uh-huh. It's so good. And what makes it so good... That's one of Casey's favorite books. Yes, that's why we're all reading it, because she is very <laughs> excited and, and influential. But it's so... It genuinely is, is very, very good. And what Andy Weir does that I think is exceptional and unique is that he's a, an extremely smart scientist, and he grew up knowing scientists and being very involved in the science community and noticed that scientists were generally a really funny, kind of quirky group. <laughs> and that wasn't portrayed a lot. They're always portrayed as being really stuck up or very serious or very focused. And so you see it in The Martian and you see it in this book. The main character is so smart, but so funny. And the writing style is amazing. And the story is incredible. Both of these are actually all of these, I guess, will be on our recommendations page. Books. We love books. So those are the two books that I'm reading right now in tandem. Very different energies, but I'm really enjoying them. Wow. Yeah, uh, I'm supposed to be part of that book club. Y'all don't at me, but I live on the opposite coast and 
I'm getting my butt kicked by life. So I, I love hearing about this third hand. Trust Tracy's recommendations. Also, Casey. Mm-hmm. Whew. I think we, we did I it. I think we did this episode. I think, yes. I think we did the thing. We did the thing. Thank you all for joining us as we did it. And remember that stories grow with the telling. So if you like what we do, tell a friend. Mm, or tell a foe. And we'll see you soon, okay? Thank you so much for joining us for the Willing and Fable podcast. This episode was written and produced by Tracy Harrison and Rowan Hall. That's me. Our editor is Tyler Fetzik, our music is by Taylor Ash, and our logo is by Jamie Harrison. If you ever want to watch or read what we're reading, head over to willingandfable.com for our show notes and custom merch, or find us at Willing and Fable on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok to join the discussion. We hope you'll rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast using your favorite listening source. And check out Willing and Fable on Patreon, where we have more than a few surprises for you, including custom artwork, stories, and access to our secret Discord channel. And of course, join us next time for another round of original retellings and in-depth research on the history, mystery, and mythology that makes the world so fascinating. Which is about 1300 to 1000 BCE. The latter. 1000? Yeah, I have number panic. Leave me alone. What? That's okay. I still say, uh, what did I say that was weird? Say, something with like 69 or but something. I said do I something say like 1300 to 1000 BCE? That just sounds so weird. 1300 to 1000 BCE. Okay. Lola, thank you. Yeah.